Well, I bring you greetings again this morning. It's good to see you. I would ask that you would turn with me in your Bibles to the first chapter of Ephesians. The text on which the sermon is based is this week, as it was last week, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. You can find it on page 1159 in the navy blue Bibles in your pew. Paul, having given this majestic overview of the glorious plan of God in verses 1 to 14, continues on. He says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority, and power, and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord, and again we say, thanks be to God. Last Sunday we used this prayer, Paul's prayer, in verses 15 to 23 to consider how he prayed and what that can teach us about prayer. And I told you then that today we're going to explore and unpack a little more of the doctrinal content of the prayer and then apply that to our lives. Let's have a look. Remember that the majority of New Testament letters were written to churches. In fact, we name a lot of the New Testament letters according to the location of the church. Uh, that was meant to receive them. Paul wrote two letters to Christians in the city of Corinth, thus 1st and 2nd Corinthians. He wrote letters to churches in the cities of Colossae and and Galatia, Colossians and Galatians. We have in this letter, which was written at least to the Christians in Ephesus and was probably meant for the surrounding cities as well, even the book of Revelation starts off with an address to seven churches. The exceptions here would be Letters that we name after their author, like 1 Peter or 1 John, or that we name after their recipient, like 1 Timothy or Philemon. Here in our passage this morning, the Apostle Paul is, of course, writing to a church. He tells them he's been praying for them, verse 15, that out of this prayer comes a glorious picture of the church's identity, what the church is for. I don't know if you've ever wondered that. What is the church for and what is the local church for? What should its people be like? I want to offer you that here in Paul's prayer, we learn that a Christian church, and I would add that a local church, should be defined by at least three things. First, we are a people of gratitude. That's verses 15 and 16. Next, we are a people of light or enlightenment or the knowledge God gives. That's verses 17 and 18. And then finally, a people of hope. Verses 19 through 23. So, gratitude, light, and hope. So, let's begin with gratitude. Look at verse 15. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. 
Paul begins by saying that he's heard of their faith, heard of their love, and that's why last week we talked about how the local church should cultivate a reputation for faithfulness, for holiness, for love. We should aim for it to be, again, one of faith in Christ and love for each other. And if you don't think that's possible, I would gently offer that the Mormons have pulled it off, right? For, uh, right our, our disagreements with the Mormons are many and numerous, too many here to name. And yet, they have generally a pretty good reputation of being decent neighbors, right? So all I'm saying there is that it, it, for any who would despair that it's possible to build a good reputation... Uh, perhaps the, small, uh, the sort of smaller the sample size, smaller the community, the better. But certainly it is possible the Ephesian church had done well in doing so. And we might be tempted to assume then that this church in Ephesus is some sort of hyper-spiritual, especially accomplished bunch. I would say no, because Ephesians has six chapters. The latter three are all, it's, it's, it's mostly commands and calls to obedience, apparently things they needed to hear again. But remember how he started the letter. In Christ. In Christ. In Christ. The God, our God and Father has put you in Christ. He sees you, as it were, through that lens of the perfect righteousness of His Son. So no, this is not a perfect local church, but yet Paul still praises God for their faith and their love for one another. And that's prob- their faith and their love. That's probably imperfect too. But do you know what he's doing? By giving thanks for the imperfect things, Paul is seeing these people as Jesus sees them. He's giving thanks both for the good he can see and the good God has yet to do. And I would offer to you that this should shape our prayers and the way we do ministry. When you pray for a person, try to avoid only seeing them as they are. Rather, when you pray for them, imagine that after, let's say, another five years of sanctification, what might the Lord be pleased to do with them and in them? When you pray for this church, for this body, with all her many imperfections, try to see her as the Lord Jesus sees her. He loves her. He has a work and a mission for her. He delights in her, and there is much good He means for her to do. And your elders, as best we know how, have uh, tried, according to our calling, to discern the mind of Christ in this regard, and that's a little plug for the congregational meeting. We'll be talking about where, what the last year has looked like and, God willing, where we want to go in the next 12 months that He's given us. So, All of that I'm asking you to do when you pray, and where will you get the strength to do that? Where will you get the strength to hold up such prayers that not only uh, uh, thank God for what He's doing, but for what He will do in the future? The answer I would offer to you is gratitude. Paul says he's praying with thanksgiving. Many have observed before that the first half of the book of Ephesians, again, is theology and doctrine, second half, commands and application. That's true. Don't miss the fact, though, that that means that here the doctrine has been grounded in thanksgiving. Solid theology grows best in the soil of gratitude. I mean, let's consider our context, shall we? Paul is in prison, likely awaiting his death. And he's talking about what he is thankful for. Doesn't that just irritate you? <laughs> In an age where we assume 
that to be, uh, how to put it, to be emotionally low and anxious all the time is normal. I think in a lot of cases we assume that. I just, and I'm just going off of what I see a lot on social media. It's almost like we make a mockery of it. Like, I'm really anxious and depressed. Isn't that hilarious? Here's what I did with my day, being so overridden by my anxiety. I would say a life dominated by gratitude and gladness seems sometimes so distant and far away that, that sometimes we lack the spiritual imagination even to envision it. But we are called to be a people of gratitude. Stop and realize today, as an exercise that I use a lot, how many of your problems and your burdens flow out of your blessings. Okay? Oh, oh, pastor, the, the car broke down. Ooh, well, that does stink. But the, the what broke down? Oh, you mean the enormous gasoline-powered contraption that propels you at speeds of 60 or 70 miles an hour, reducing a hard day's journey to an afternoon's inconvenience. So your problem is that your air-conditioned chariot is malfunctioning. Okay, take the biggest problem you've got in your life right now, or the biggest three, and just see if you can't trace it back to some kind of kindness or blessing from God. That doesn't mean the pain doesn't hurt. It doesn't mean the burdens aren't heavy. Don't misunderstand. But we're called to be a people of enormous gratitude. The way it most basically manifests, I would offer to you, is just simple, run-of-the-mill gladness. And I give this charge especially to fathers and husbands. Brothers, you are very good at being emotional thermometers. Here's what I mean. When you walk into the house at the end of the day, you immediately know the emotional temperature in the kitchen. If the kids have been a terror, you can tell. If your wife is frustrated or stressed, you can tell. And if by contrast, let's say it's a happy environment, well, you can tell. If the kids are happy and, and discipline has happened and they're getting on well with each other, that you can tell. You're good at being a thermometer. God has actually called you to be a thermostat. So if you walk in and observe that the room is cold with grumbling and irritation, you come in with gladness and joy and encouragement and smiles, and you laugh louder until you see that temperature adjust. That will flow, however, out of your gratitude for what God has given you. So a people of gratitude, a people of light was the next point, a people of light. Look at verse 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? Sometimes Presbyterians are accused of being the eggheads of the faith and that we put too much emphasis on knowing things. And while I do think we can be guilty of that at times, wherever we are guilty of it, it is an, it is an overemphasis on a, on a biblical and apostolic reality. And that is, and I would buckle your seatbelts here, I'm going to give you something that's going to really blow your mind. You must know stuff. You must know things about the gospel, about the work of Christ, in history and in your own life and in the church. 
Paul here prays that the Father of our Lord Jesus would give you the Spirit. Notice that Trinitarian work happening there. The Spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him so that you may know the hope to which He's called you. Paul prays that the church would see the eyes of their heart enlightened. Don't miss that. Paul says we have to know things. We have to know things in the knowledge of Him. And we know things by having the eyes of our heart enlightened. So is this a knowledge thing or a heart thing? Yes. And if you connect this to the earlier material in chapter 1, you begin to realize that Paul does not have his longing set on the hope that maybe, maybe one day his readers might enjoy spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. He writes as though the many blessings of God are something these people already have. When he speaks of election, predestination, adoption, holiness, blamelessness, the glorious grace of God, he doesn't say maybe someday you'll have these things. He says already in Christ you have all these blessings. So what does he pray for? In short, he prays that they would realize what they have. Again, to go back to gratitude. That they would realize that the eyes of their heart would be enlightened, that they would know the riches of their own inheritance. That you may know the hope to which He's called you. This is why we are, as I said in the the sermon point, a people of light, a people of knowledge. Historically, learning if, if you're learning what you previously didn't know, right? <clears throat> it's no secret to you, you might use the word to be enlightened or enlightenment. That has always been described as, uh, uh, that is, gaining knowledge has often been described throughout history as moving from darkness to light. Even Plato described the deepest kind of enlightenment, right? Moving from a dark cave to the sunlit places outside. And Paul probably understood this metaphor better than most, don't you think? He was confronted by Jesus himself, knocked to the ground and blinded for three days. What was Jesus doing there if not showing Paul who he really was? The man who thought he could see everything, thought he had everything figured out rightly, was left blind by his first authentic encounter with the risen Jesus. And then in a glorious bit of poetic justice, he has to depend on other Christians, these people he was persecuting like 20 seconds ago, to lead him around for three days until Ananias the prophet comes to restore his sight. You see, the greatest trouble that confronts us is that we don't see. That's why Paul's prayer is that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened. We don't see ourselves properly, which results in pride. We don't see our reality properly, which results in foolishness. We don't see God's gifts properly, which results in ingratitude or covetousness. We don't see our circumstances properly, which results in doubt and despair. It tends to be the case that whatever sort of the one thing is you're struggling with, the one thing is that, that, is, that is your burden, the thing you're worrying about, the thing that is hurting, the thing that is, well, what it does is it takes up your vision to where it's all you can see and all you can think about. I mean, for some it's your health or your absence of health, right? your money or the absence of money. Our problem is not that God is not at work, though, in our lives. Our problem is that we are often blind to it. Brian Chappell notes uh, that at one point, 
we believed, as in like sort of scientific consensus, believed blue whales to be mute. It was later discovered that they weren't mute at all. They just communicated at a frequency that was too low for human ears to hear. With modern instruments, what we've actually found is that the blue whale's deep bass call is so powerful, it can actually carry for hundreds or thousands of miles. You then realize that while only in the last few generations have we invented telecommunication and smartphones, the blue whales have been singing songs in New York's harbors that can be heard in England's ports. So it wasn't that the whales were deaf. It was that we were deaf. In 2 Kings 6, Elijah and his servant are surrounded by the armies of Syria. And the servant panics. Oh no, Lord Elijah, what are we going to do? And Elijah doesn't pray, Lord, send us an army. He says, oh Lord, open his eyes. Open his eyes to see the armies that are already here. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. You see, God didn't get rid of the problem. He opened his eyes to reveal how things actually were. He sort of gave the problem some heavenly context. And so what God means to show us when He enlightens the eyes of our hearts is that He's given us this great inheritance, as Paul says, this great treasure in Christ and in the gospel. And the eyes of our heart are so easily distracted. Paul says that we need to have the eyes of our heart oriented toward the hope that Jesus has given us. And that's the last point. We are people of hope. Look at verse 19. Paul, speaking of the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. So, so Sorry, I have to pause for a minute. Paul's made this claim about the power of God Then he gives you a picture. What does the power of God look like? It looks like this. Raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule, authority, power, dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Amen. This is the climax of the entire prayer. We started... By saying we're called to be a people of gratitude, I remember with thanks your faith, your love for all the saints, and we're called to be a people of light, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. But to what end? Grateful for what? Enlightened to understand what exactly? These verses answer both questions. We're called to know and rejoice in the hope of Jesus Christ, to be a people of hope. In other words, when our eyes are opened and enlightened rightly, they will focus on Jesus, who He is and what He's done. And the answer we give to all the things that tempt us in our flesh to be grumpy, to be without gratitude, this is the answer to all the invitations given in our hearts to remain in darkness and despair and bitterness that the crucified Christ has risen from the dead. That's the God you're dealing with. The one who dies and rises again, that kind of power is the God that you're dealing with. 
the, the recognition and realization that that's the God you're dealing with is what enables your gratitude. It is what fuels your enlightenment, your knowledge, your growth in grace. That the crucified Christ is risen from the dead. Not only that, He's been seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places. Far above all rule, earth, uh, authority, power, and dominion. Above, above every name that is named. I, I quote from Brian Chappell again. He says, To explain this sovereign power, Paul mentions virtually every dimension of authority and strength that he knows about. Right? He just starts making this list of, of when I think power and authority, what comes to mind? So he starts naming all the categories. Power, authority, dominion, name that is named, and so on. From political rule to physical might to spiritual forces in this age and in the age to come. And simply says, Jesus is greater than all of it. In fact, I, I have to confess to you uh, uh, as, as regards Brian Chapel, I, I don't agree with everything the guy has ever said or written, but he has penned some absolutely brilliant material on the last five verses of our passage, and it's, it's so good I, I leaned heavily on it in the sermon preparation. But I want to tell you that what we find here in this text is a revelation of reality. That's the enlightening that our heart needs to see reality, like Elijah's servant, right? Oh, Lord, open his eyes. What we find here in this text is a revelation of reality that Christ is head over all things. All things means all things, and He's filling all creation with His purposes. And this is the really astonishing part, that He's using His church to do it. That's, I don't know if you missed it, that's the mind-blowing part. Go back to verse uh, 22. And He put all things under His feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now you probably know this is Psalm 110 language that Paul is using. He's quoting the voice of the Father, speaking prophetically to the risen and ascended Christ. Right, Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Well, God has put all things under the feet of Christ. And this is that now and not yet tension we talked about. Everything is under the feet of Christ, and it's being put under the feet of Christ. And He's given Christ now the head of all things to the church, Paul says, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. This is so astonishing, so mind-bending. The more I tried to grasp it in preparing for this sermon, the less I was able to believe it. O oh Lord, enlighten the eyes of my heart. What this means is that the universe is always and ever being constrained to its perfect course that God Almighty has set for it, bent in new directions and all of it for the good of the bride of Christ. History is unavoidably and inexorably marching forward toward the triumph of Jesus, which is a triumph that he means to carry out in his body, the church. How's that for hope? This is something that's so astonishing that we have in our present moment often just been ashamed to say it. We are okay with the idea that Jesus wins, that Jesus rules, that Jesus has all authority, that he's putting all his enemies under his feet? Yes, yes, well and fine. But how? How is he doing that? By the resurrection power he's given to his body. The church. The ascended and seated Jesus Christ is changing the world 
for the good of his church by the means of his church. Jesus means to fill the world, brothers and sisters, every square inch of it, to quote Kuiper, with his glory and his purposes and his worship and his people, his church. And this hope is the hope that is given to his church, possessed by his people alone. No other agency or institution on earth has been given such a glorious promise. Christ is building his kingdom, and he has charged us, his church, his body on earth, to keep on building until the knowledge of the Lord covers the earth as the waters cover the seas. What this means is that our mission is not only contained within these four walls. Our mission is not only contained within these four walls. It is most certainly not limited to the things our world would call religious, because Jesus Christ fills all in all. And that means that all of culture is the domain of Jesus. His church is how He means to fill it up. This means we must be about reading and preaching all of God's Word, every bit of it, including perhaps especially those parts that make us uncomfortable. And we like to flatter ourselves and think, oh, there aren't any parts of the Bible that make me uncomfortable. Please be serious. (laughs) Keep on reading, yeah. We must bring that Word to bear on every square inch of life and creation. The church is God's instrument for world transformation and renewal. Not in our own strength, because instruments don't do things in their own strength. Now, some have interpreted this to mean that the church should, over the course of her time, seek to just amass and hoard uh, money and power, uh, financial, political, even military power, to uh, to impose Christ's will on the nations. We must be careful here. Because temptations are many, and our flesh is weak. Some Christians, I would offer to you, some Christians have cared too little about the temptations of money and power, and their end has been destruction by money and power. Indeed, when the Messiah came, the Jews were expecting a military general who would crush Rome so that Rome would come begging to Israel. When Jesus came... The kind of victory he won was not the one they were looking for. It did not accord with their lusts, so they rejected their inheritance. We often find ourselves in similar kinds of temptations. Where you have a very specific vision, say, for what God ought to be doing, but he's not doing it. That one thing is the thing you're always fretting about, agonizing over, even always praying about. And it consumes you. It blinds you to the gifts around you if you're not careful. That's why we need gratitude. That's why we need our hearts opened to see, to go back to the earlier points. That's why we need the hope of the gospel. As one theologian has brilliantly put it, we are searching for a quarter in the couch when God has opened a bank vault. So yes, some Christians have cared too little about the temptations of money and power. Others have been too possessed, I would argue, by the fear of money and power, even skeptical of all virtuous ambition, and have simply surrendered the ground, that is the the ground of, let's say, the, the financial and political sectors of society, to the godless, 
and have forfeited the call to see Christ fill all in all. They've obeyed the secular state, which commands that the church's responsibility is to keep God contained in our four walls, and it is the state's responsibility to remain happily godless. Jesus is not intimidated by money or power or kingdoms or authorities because He has all of it. He means to put them all under His feet. So yes, yes, I want to see Christians with money building ministries of mercy, building cathedrals of glory, building businesses that don't fear the mob. And in our economically depressed city that is ruled by a spirit of poverty, if you have ever thought about starting a business, you should start praying now about what it is your neighbors need. It might be that you have always wanted to open a mattress store. (laughs) My brother, my sister, I would plead with you to reconsider. Alexandria has a glut of mattress stores, and I have no idea why. But if God has burdened you with a sense that perhaps you should start a business, maybe, what do your neighbors need? Start praying about that. As for politics, yes, I want to see Christians in the halls of power loving their neighbors by preventing fraud and corruption and abuse, by forbidding the murder of babies and the mutilation of children. I want to see Jesus filling every corner of life and work and education and infrastructure because it's all His anyway. The fullness of Him who fills all in all. Yes, that has to be done with enormous care and caution and prayer and accountability. Oh, accountability. Can you imagine if you heard like a senator say, there's a pastor who I confess my sins to regularly and he calls me to holiness. I I can't even hear it. But accountability, the, the, the church would function in that way for the state. The state's conscience is the old word. Yes, it has to be done with great care and caution because, oh, frail and full of sin are we. But we are people of hope. The hope of Jesus Christ who fills all in all. I'm going to wrap up this sermon by telling you about our brothers, the Huguenots. Okay? The French Huguenots, and I don't know if it's Huguenot or Huguenot, and I don't care. Just listen to the illustration, okay? They were Christians in France during the time of the Reformation, and they grew with a force that could only be called supernatural. Listen, as many as 3,000 churches within a seven-year period. Seven years, 3,000 churches. How's that for a church planting strategy? And during that time... It was really easy to see. I mean, you can almost imagine them reading Ephesians 1 to each other and, and when the incomparably great power of Christ. Oh, yeah. I mean, obviously. Look around. Incomparably great power of Christ. But soon the Catholic French monarchy had had enough of this new Protestantism and in a series of edicts, imprisonments, and massacres destroyed the movement. Tens of thousands tried to flee the country, but actually being a religious refugee was itself a crime punishable by imprisonment or death. So while thousands fled, many more were forced to worship in secret. What might astonish us in our modern individualism was their commitment to continue to worship together, even during times like that. They they fashioned communion sets that could be quickly dismantled and hidden inside a book or a flower sack. Pulpits were constructed out of wire and sheets that in a moment could be folded up to look like a pile of laundry. One pulpit 
from that time was fashioned so it, be, it could be collapsed into the shape of a wine barrel and then, almost like a transformer's toy, be unfolded into a massive wooden pulpit. I want to see it. I've only heard about it. I really want to. If you find it on Google, let me know. <laughs> we'll make one. Yeah, I'll get right on that. <laughs> Why would they do all that? Why would they do all that? Keep in mind that if a congregation was caught worshiping without the king's approval, the pastor would be executed. The men would be made galley slaves for life. The women would be sent to prison for life. The children would be taken away to be raised in government-sponsored boarding schools. The penalties were steep and awful. You have to wonder if more than a few of the Huguenots at that time were wondering aloud, where has our God gone? Where was that incomparably great power for those who believe? And I think if we're honest, there's part of us that says, just, just stop meeting. That's how you're getting caught. Maybe just worship God in private. Just read your Bible and do your devotions and stop going to church. That'd certainly be the safe thing to do. And yet they continued to meet. And today we know who the Huguenots are. Do you know the names of all their persecutors? Yeah, me either. Their names live on. Since their time, governments and philosophies have risen and fallen. Dictators and oppressors have ruled and have died and faded. But all through it, the church of Jesus Christ is carrying His message. His message of a crucified and risen, ascended and seated Savior. And His, his rule has endured. The gates of hell have not prevailed against it, and they shall not. Christ shall have dominion, and He will use His church to bring His rule to the hearts of His people throughout the world. So God means to work mightily through us. That should not make us arrogant. It should drive us to our knees in humble prayer. We should not pretend that the challenges ahead of us are small or that they won't hurt. But we can say that none of our work is in vain. It often, to our unenlightened eyes, might seem in vain. Therefore, may the eyes of our hearts be opened to what He is doing in us and through us so that we can always speak of our hope, of the riches and the power that are pos the possession of those God calls for His own glory and Jesus Christ our Savior. Indeed, in the name of Jesus. Amen. And so, our Father, we ask that You would plant this Word deep in our hearts and cause it to bear fruit that we would pray like our brother, the Apostle Paul, that we would rejoice at all that you are doing, and that, Lord, we pray with humility that even good word of our, of our faith and our love for all the saints would reach the ears of surrounding brothers and sisters, that you would build your kingdom here, throughout the state of Louisiana, throughout our nation, and indeed throughout our world. This you will accomplish for your glory, by your word and your spirit, through the instrument of your people, not because we are great, but because you are kind and you stoop to do good work through sinful hands such as ours. And so we thank you with gratitude in our hearts and in Jesus' name. Amen.